The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City... My name is Charity Sutton, and today I will be reading Psalm 13. Can you all please stand for the reading of the word? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness. Oh, wait, hold on. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Um, but, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. This is the word of the Lord. Great job, Miss Charity. So, fam, good to see you guys this morning. You guys awake? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the pastors here, and uh, it is good to see you. Welcome to the Burbank location. Together with the, uh, with the uh, Granada Hills location, uh, we make up Story City Church. You know, I just, I got to stop for a second. If you guys understood the significant win that it is for Charity's family, for her to be able to be up here this morning, uh, that is a huge, huge deal. Many of you know that I am a, a parent of a special needs child, and when you have wins, you will take any that you can get because they are sometimes few and far between. And so this, is, this was not just a young lady coming up and reading this morning. This was a very special moment. So I'm going to try and uh, choke back tears and get back into this. But uh, welcome, welcome, especially those of you joining us for the first time in person or online. We are super glad you're here. We want to know uh, your story. We'd love to meet you and hear that story. The Story City Church exists to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. That word healthy is something that really matters to us here. We would rather go slower and not grow and do what we need to do in order to have healthy relationships with Jesus and people. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're here so that people know and know how to follow Jesus better and know how to love each other. Uh, Jesus was once asked, what's the most important rules? What am I supposed to follow? God, if i got to boil all this down, what does this come down to? And Jesus answered, he said, to love God with everything we are and have and to love your neighbors as yourself. And that's a, a hard thing because to love our neighbors as ourselves means to literally extend the same rights, the same privileges, the same kindness and grace and belief about intentions. Ooh, that's a hard one. And respect that we give ourselves, the exact same things we would afford ourselves is what we have to extend to our neighbors. And that was such a hard answer that the people around Jesus said, all right, well then, who's my neighbor? Like, who do I actually have to extend this to? And Jesus gave them the worst answer that they could get. It was everyone around us up to and including our enemies and those radically different than us. See, living this way isn't something we just fall into. We have to learn and practice and be challenged and encouraged. And that's why we journey on this path together as a church family. That's why so much about church is more than Sunday morning. This is our opportunity to celebrate together, but it's not what makes up church. Church is the life that we live together. So welcome. We're glad that you are checking out this family. We're glad that you're here. 
We love that you are a part of it. Don't worry, there are some crazy uncles here, just like in every family. That's all right. If you're one of them, you're welcome here too. It's okay. Um, but, but we're on this journey together, and we're glad that you are with us. Today is uh, the end of our series, the Psalms of Lament. Um, I got a little excited last week and was like, cool, we're wrapping up our series. And then I found out I, I got to preach one more week in this series. I thought I started vacation early, uh, and the staff was like, no, 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 you're preaching this weekend. So uh, we will be, uh, my family and I will be on vacation in July, just prepping for all the really cool things that are coming up in the fall, and I'm excited about that. Uh, we have a series in August we're doing on mental health. I'm super stoked. We'll be, we'll be uh, going through a series in the morning, and in the evening, we have a partnership with, uh, with uh, a psychologist who loves Jesus, and she and I will be doing evening sessions where we'll get to talk about some things about how the Bible sees mental health, about how we deal with things in both a biblical and a, a practical way because we are holistic as human beings. We are not just spiritual and physical, but we are emotional as well, and so uh, you'll be able to come back in that evening and ask some questions, so I'm super excited about that. There's some more stuff coming out. If you haven't seen it in the newsletter, please check that out. But for now, let's get to this question that is clearly confusing some people. How long can you hold your breath? What do you guys got for me? Yeah, okay. <laughs> about as long as the question. Anybody, anybody like an expert at this? No, no one. I have no former free divers, nobody that, you know, as a hobby plays hide and seek. Like, <laughs> Nothing? Anybody, anybody over 30 seconds? Okay. There's some confident people in here. Anybody? 44. I like that you know exactly. Did you do that in the break? You, you did it. That's, that's beautiful. Anybody over a minute? Oh, okay. I still, got, I still got some of you. Anybody over a minute 30? Oh, okay. Some practice people. Some of you all cheating. You're like, yeah, I'm keeping my mouth closed. I'm breathing. Okay. All right. I won't go any farther because I'm not encouraging anything bad here. According to WebMD, a Spanish freediver, Alex Segura Vendrell, holds the Guinness World Record for the longest time holding one's breath voluntarily. I love that they had to put that in there. Voluntar- I don't know what non-voluntarily holding your breath is, but that's okay. On February 28, 2016, he held his breath for 24 minutes, 3.45 seconds. Now, two things. So you know, it is easier to hold your breath underwater. That's one. But two, in order to do this, divers and extreme breath holders, extreme, like how do you classify as an extreme breath holder? Listen, side note, I'm going to change your all's lives. Did you know that there's an extreme sport called extreme ironing? It's like skydiving and rock climbing while you, I don't look it up now, look it up after service. I got more important stuff to tell you, but I'm just telling you, there's, there's stuff out there. Okay, so extreme breath holders. What they do is they inhale pure oxygen for several minutes before their attempt. They hyperventilate pure oxygen, and then it allows them to slow the carbon dioxide that's coming out. The longest instance, though, of someone holding their breath without inhaling pure oxygen is still ridiculous. It's 11 minutes and 34 seconds. The author writes that uh, doctors say everyone is different, but many people can go somewhere between one and two minutes before passing out. Okay, so some of us who are at like 30 seconds are like two minutes, really? Here's a deal, though. For most people, death is not imminent until around the five-minute mark. Now, this article on WebMD goes on to explain that there are actually potential benefits of holding your breath. Those benefits when part of a breathing exercise or technique include 
regenerating damaged brain tissue, lowering inflammation, bringing relaxation, and helping to improve the health of your cardiovascular system. Did you catch that, though? Most people pass out between one and two minutes. However, we aren't generally, other than maybe being hurt by the passing out itself, actually in danger until more than double that time. See, the truth is that our body is built in with these defense mechanisms that wants to protect itself, but also some of the very things that it wants to protect itself against can actually help it. This brings us to today's big idea for those taking notes. Lament, lament is the path to restoration. Lament is a path to restoration. We're going to learn that restoration comes through his plans, That it's his fight, not ours, and that it requires his strength. Now, for those of you who have been with us in this series over the past four weeks before this, uh, I'm going to assume that you understand the turn, complain, ask, and trust steps on the path to lament. If that's not you, that's totally fine. If you missed the past few weeks, I just highly recommend that you go back and check out how to use those steps in the path to lament because it's helpful. I'm not going to cover it as much this week because I'm going to focus more on the outcome of this path of lament than the process. So let's pray, and we'll jump into our scripture, Psalm 13. Father God, thank you that you, Lord, are everything that we need, but also that you know more what we need and who we are than even we do. Father, it's difficult to trust you simply because we have a hard time really believing that you're going to do what's best for us. And so, Father, we we echo what we've heard in Scripture. We believe, help us in our unbelief. I pray that in this moment you would help us to see and understand who you are, that we would understand what it means to walk this path with you. We thank you that we can come to you with our anger, our frustration, our loneliness, our bitterness, our, our complaints against you, Lord, with injustice, that we can lay those at your feet and walk a path with you as you work in us to restore us and the people around us. And so thank you for all that you do, God. You are good and gracious and holy in your name. Amen. Let's go back and remind ourselves of the scripture that Miss Charity read for us. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I'll sleep in death. My enemies, my enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. The first thing I want us to notice in this is that phrase, how long? How long? How long? It's repeated multiple times. One commentator notes that while this phrase is used in other psalms, nowhere is it used as many times as in Psalm 13. And so in repeating it, we're meant to understand that this has been an ongoing issue. This is something that has been, that has been uh, taking a long time to transpire. This is not just, you know, we're reading the psalm and it's, it's, it's obviously condensed. It's like a 30-minute TV show, like everything just gets shoved in. We're like, okay, cool, like resolved really quickly. But the truth is it takes longer than that. And that's the same thing we're experiencing here is that we're seeing something that he's condensing down to a short song, but it's been going on for a long time. 
And this brings us to our first observation for the day for those taking notes. That restoration comes through His plans. Restoration comes through His plans. Now, it's easy to say, you know, from the stage, hey, follow the path of lament. Just turn, complain, ask, trust. It's all good, and things will get better. There's this feeling that if we just do the thing, then God's going to fix stuff immediately for us. But the truth is that God has always promised to do what's best for us and for His kingdom. And sometimes what's best for us is not to be rescued from our circumstances. But for God to walk with us as we experience hardship and suffering. See, the problem is, is that that's hard for us to reconcile because we don't actually value suffering. No, we don't value suffering. I mean, we would think we were weird if we valued suffering, right? Like, that's, that's sadistic. But the reality is, is that we actually value comfort more than, than anything else. And so it's not that we devalue suffering as much as we think. It's that we value our comfort more. You know, I remember one time uh, coming home and uh, I had a raging headache. You guys know what I'm talking about? One of those skull-crushing headaches. You're just like, oh, please. If I just don't have to see or hear anybody, I'm fantastic. And I'm sitting down in the chair and my kids come in and they're being super loud and they're chasing each other. They're doing, you know, they're being funny, right? And I remember getting upset with them and yelling. I'm like, go play someplace else. And they looked at me like with that weird look, like, why are you mad? What is this, you know? And they walked out. And a couple minutes later, I realized, like, why am I mad? Why was I upset? And the truth was, they had done the exact same thing the day before, and I was laughing with them about it. So what was the difference? Well, the difference was I was inconvenienced because I had a raging headache. And I took it out on my kids because I was like, oh, you're disturbing me. And I felt I had the right to not be disturbed. Now, obviously, that didn't cross my mind while it was happening. What crossed my mind was happening was, why are you guys being so loud? Get out right? But it, what it was, it's that idea of convenience. And so much of us is built around this idea of we shouldn't have to face inconvenience. Why do you think we get mad at traffic? We know better, right? You know that if it's a certain time of day, you have to plan extra time. And then we get mad like people are causing us to be late, but people didn't cause us to be late. It's our own convenience that we are upset that we didn't plan enough time or that something happened we didn't expect. And it, it impinges upon our right that we feel, to not be inconvenienced. And so this is part of the problem, that we don't, suffer, we don't welcome suffering because we don't realize what it does produce in us, and so we avoid it. Now, this like welcoming suffering, suffering peace and embracing the uncomfortable becomes more difficult when God's plans are not clear. If we understand clearly what God is doing, then it's like, well, yeah, I can almost handle anything that's uncomfortable because I know the outcome is going to be good, and so I can go through that. But it gets uncomfortable when we blow past a pain threshold. Oh, God, this one's, this one's harder than I thought it was going to be. Or we've set something that's dangerous to us. Okay, God, I, I can't take anymore. This is as much as I can handle. We're 30 seconds into me holding my breath. I'm pretty sure I'm going to pass out now, God. You better step in because I'm going to die. And I'm being facetious in one sense, but in the same sense, it's really true how we feel. Again, though, God's plan oftentimes allows us to suffer for our own good. Now, God, again, does not uh, make us suffer. He's not, the, he's not the author of the suffering, but it does allow us to experience it. Author Ian Harbour writes, Suffering isn't something to avoid or suppress, but it's a means of God's transformative work in our lives. Suffering isn't something to avoid or suppress, but it's a means of God's transformative work in our lives. When we can come to a place 
where we don't love suffering itself, right, but we love what it produces, then we can value what God is doing through the suffering and consider that thing worthwhile. This is exactly what Jesus' brother James is talking about in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. If we left it there, it would be weird. But he continues, verse 3, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So this is why we can consider there being some sort of joy in the midst of suffering. And verse 4, and let endurance have its full effect. So don't try to get out of it. Let it do what it's supposed to do. It's doing something in you so that, this is what it's doing, you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But we don't just build a theology off one scripture in the Bible. So the Apostle Paul also writes about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. That's the same thing, suffering, trials. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces, bless you, hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, it's not a hope like I I hope this happens. It's a hope of biblical hope, which is a certainty. If that wasn't enough, the Apostle Peter also writes about this in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when a fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. This, we're going to experience this. And he goes on, or he writes before that, 1 Peter 1.7, he writes, So that proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God doesn't cause suffering in our lives again, But he doesn't always rescue us from that suffering. Instead, he walks through that suffering with us as it builds endurance, as it builds godly character, as it builds hope, as it builds steadfast faith, and as ultimately it gives us praise, glory, and honor in him. And so, family, suffering either leads to brokenness and hopelessness or growth through the brokenness. Suffering either leads to brokenness and hopelessness or growth through that brokenness. The difference is usually found in how we handle the suffering. Now, do we remain still in the midst of the suffering? Do we let God do what God is doing? I'll tell you that for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I try to get out as fast as I can. I do not like that kind of pressure of suffering. It just bothers me. You know, no one likes it, right? No one likes it, but we, we try to scramble out of it. And, and I think part of it is because we have this ideal that like we've done something wrong, so maybe God's punishing us. If you've been a Christian for a long time, it's like I, I made a mistake. God is showing me that I've done something wrong. I've got to get out of this so I can get to the good stuff. But the truth is that God's love, God's favor is not based on what we do. It's based on who he is. And so when we make mistakes, right, like we, we have our own consequences, that's true. But it's not like God gives us better stuff and we're obedient and bad, worse stuff and we're not. We do face our consequences, but God's love is not contingent like whether we're good or not. God's love is there because it's who he is. You know, we, we squirm under the pressure. It's almost like, anybody ever play that game Operation when you're a kid? Yeah, you got to take the little plastic pieces out. Imagine trying to play that game if the little character was wiggling the whole time. Like, that's what we do to God when God is just trying to take these little pieces out of us. He's like, I need to remove that from you. That's dangerous. That's not healthy. Let me get this out. And we're like, no, stop. That's exactly how y'all sound. Just making sure. 
David himself understands not being still. He, he writes this in verse 2. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? That word anxious concerns that we translate anxious concerns should more rightly be translated as plans. What David is saying is that he's like, look, God, how long do I have to keep making these plans? I'm making these plans and and it's like nothing's happening and it's consuming my thoughts. God, these plans are overwhelming me. I have all these ways that I want to respond. I, I have all these ways that I want to fix this. Let me just take care of this guy. Like, wh- why am I having all these problems and you're not doing something about it? He wants to carry out his own plans instead of waiting for God's plans to unfold. David is trying to escape that pressure. For those taking notes today, this brings us to point number two, observation for the day. Restoration comes through his fight. Restoration comes through his fight. I'll tell you, this is the hardest one for me personally, that it's God's fight. A number of years ago at another church, I had an employee who got into a huge conflict with other staff members. It was actually humorous, (laughs) uh, you know, as many stupid arguments are. Uh, but it obviously had some deep-seated issues under there that all came out in the middle of something. And so I decided to step in and be the mediator and ended up with that employee's ire directed at me instead. Uh, it's kind of funny. You guys may not know this, but uh, therapists and pastors deal with this all the time. You can have a couple that's like, fighting, right? And they're super angry at each other. But the moment you step in, what happens? They're like, ooh, <laughs> I can target on somebody else. And so they both turn their, their anger and their frustration on you. Again, therapists, pastors get this a lot. It's kind of funny. Um, and, and so this is what happened. Like the two sides were arguing. I stepped in and this person just went, whoosh, gotcha. They ended up uh, leaving the staff and the church, but not before they spread some, some interesting lies uh, and worked to damage my reputation itself. I became... Again, the object of their frustration. Now, there were several people that were swayed by this, and so we had people starting to leave the church. It was one of those whole drama things. And I was like, God, fix this. Like, what what are you going to do? And very clearly, I believe that I heard God tell me to stop trying to defend myself. To stop trying to defend myself. That's not easy for me. Right? And so I didn't do that. I started defending myself. But what happens when you begin to defend yourself against somebody else to make sure that you're innocent? What, what do you have to do? You have to make the other person look bad. Not, not intentionally, but in order to take off, hey, this is not true, you have to go back and speak against what the other person said and did. You're basically saying they are not being honest. They're not being true, right? No matter what you do, you can't make it like, well, it's not me. You, you end up turning it back on them. And so that's exactly what I did, and it made things even worse. I just, I made a huge mess of things. It wasn't good. A couple years later, I ended up in a very similar situation, though not at work. Uh, one of my best friends was convinced that I wanted to take over his position in the friend group. And uh, I'm changing some of the details in the story to protect the innocent. So you understand. But, uh, but it wasn't true. It wasn't true. I didn't want his position. I didn't want his place of leadership. I didn't want his power. I wanted none of it. But he was an excellent gaslighter narcissist. And he convinced others that I had acted in ways that I hadn't. And uh, for instance, he would say, hey, can you go do this for the friend group? Sure. So I went and did that, and he'd come back, and he'd be like, I can't believe you just did that. And he'd tell everybody that I went off on my own and was trying to benefit myself by whatever it was that I did. 
Family, I, I don't know about you, but when you get to this place, I'm talking the type of conflict that you can't sleep. All you can do is think about how you should have said this when you ran to that person, how you should have answered this, or how you should have seen this coming. Or, or you know what I'm talking about? That like chest tightness where it just feels like you constantly are maybe on the borderline of having a heart attack because it's so much just grief and pressure and, and frustration. Good, I thought I was the only one. So me and Catrice, all right, cool. There's, there's a couple of you. And then it all broke loose. See, God had told me the same thing. Don't defend yourself. And I'm like, God, what, what's going to happen? And so for, I suffered in silence for a year, family. A year. And here's the deal. The whole time I was still taking the lies, the rebukes, the loss of respect, the loss of position in our friend group without saying anything, without speaking badly of that person. All of it. But it broke loose, and what happened was, as it turns out, of course, he was treating everybody the exact same way. He was gaslighting everybody, and when it broke, everybody figured out, wait a minute, if that stuff wasn't true about me, but he was manipulating me, then maybe it wasn't true about anybody else, and it went back to me being the first one, and everybody realized, wait a minute, you didn't do those things. And they started going, no, 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 you know what? I actually knew that wasn't true, but I was afraid to say something because he had this on me. And so it turned to this whole deal where because I had dealt with them longer than, uh, dealt with the situation longer than any of them, they were actually amazed at how I had handled it. And it actually brought me more respect and increased my reputation. The very things I was afraid of losing the most were the things that were actually doubled down from when things were good, I actually had a way better reputation, way better health, much more influential leadership because they wanted to know why and how I had been able to handle it that way. The truth was I was able to bring glory to God by being uh, honorable but allowing God to fight my battle for me. But I'm not going to lie, that was a ridiculously long year. It definitely took years off my life. And to be honest, in the middle of it, there was times I didn't think I was going to make it through. I just wasn't sure I could handle anymore. We actually see David reach this same point too. David talks about those plans. How long will I store up these anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. He's crying out because it feels like God has not done anything yet. God has not responded. God is just sitting there for him in the same way that God let me go through this for a long period of time. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemies will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. David feels as if he's at the end here. I mean, this the enemy has dominated. That's not a great thing to be able to say, like, here's, here's where I am. The enemy has dominated me. David has no vitality or strength left. He says he's shaken and broken. He's begging God to act before there's nothing left to protect or defend. And the Bible tells us over and over again that he's the one responsible for fighting for us, for avenging us, for righting the wrongs. And sometimes we will see the resolution of those wrongs in this time frame, and sometimes we will not see justice served upon that person until the other side of heaven. But here's what we do know. We do know that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. Some people say, the God of the Old Testament, I heard this not too long ago at the writer's strike. Somebody said, how do you deal with a God who's so angry in the Old Testament but seems so loving in the New? See, the reality is that God has never changed. God loves people, but he hates sin, and he hates anything that keeps people from him. 
In the Old Testament, God rages against the nations and the enemies and the sins that keep the people from him. In the New Testament, you know what he rages against? The religious people that keep people from him. Ultimately, God is the same, though. Nothing should stand between him and his people, and he hates that. He loves people and hates sin. He hates injustice and is against anything that keeps people from him. We see that in the New Testament, though, we see that wrath get dealt with, that justice get placed upon Jesus Christ. All of God's wrath and justice gets placed fully upon Jesus. And so all who apprentice Jesus receive Jesus' righteousness and therefore are not subject to that wrath and punishment. This has two effects. If the person is an apprentice of Jesus who has harmed us, then nothing we can think of could possibly be a worse punishment than, than torture, murder, and all the sins of the world placed on Jesus. All the sin of the world laid on him and the rejection by God that Jesus experienced on the cross in his human nature. Anything we could possibly wish to punish somebody who has harmed us with can't possibly be worse than what's already happened to Jesus when he paid that price. We might say, but it's not fair. They deserve to pay for what they've done personally. Yes, but so do we. So do we. Those who choose not to be apprentices of Jesus don't have the righteousness of Jesus and will experience the full wrath and punishment as a result of their choice. Either way, justice will always be carried out and we can trust that God, as God of both mercy and justice, will offer both and carry out both because he's good. In the end, God is the one who fights our battles and will bring all battles to the end as he is king of all. Because I knew that God was fighting my battle this time, I didn't learn that lesson the first time, but the second time and subsequent times because I knew that God was fighting my battle on behalf of me against this gaslighter. I didn't actually have to hold on to anger. And you know how long it took me to get over anger from the first situation? Because I was still mourning my reputation. I was still upset about what had happened. And I was still upset about the way that I had handled it when I knew that it wasn't the right way. But in this situation, when God is fighting our battles, we don't have to hold on to anger. We don't have to hold on to bitterness. We don't have to seek retribution and hope. I didn't have to hope this guy got his. In fact, because I could turn justice over to God and trust that God would do it, I actually could move back to a place of loving this person while keeping healthy boundaries. But I can truly say that I don't harbor anything against him. I'm not angry or bitter or even hurt. If we're in the same room together, it doesn't bother me, right? I'm, we're, we're not hanging out together because I have to keep healthy boundaries. But the truth is, like, there's nothing there except care for him and praying for him. And, man, my heart hurts for him that he doesn't yet see what he's caused. He hasn't been able to understand his responsibility in it. And I dream of the day when he does, and great, it would be awesome if that friendship could be restored. But unless God changes him on this side of heaven, that's something that will have to happen for boundaries. But, but honestly, at least I'm not holding on to anything that's harming me. It's not my fight. It's the Lord's. For those taking notes today, this is our third and final observation for the day. Restoration comes through his strength. There's a huge, this is not a long psalm, six verses, right? But there's a huge, huge switch in the middle of this psalm. The difference between the two is stark between what we see in verse 3 compared to verse 6. Consider me and answer me, verse 3, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. That's the end of this, like, this is what's going to happen if you don't step in. 
And then all of a sudden, verse 5 shifts, right? You have this transition verse, but I've trusted in your faithful love. My heart will, this is future, my heart will rejoice in your deliverance. And then verse 6 is this huge shift. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Pastor Charles Spurgeon writes of this of Psalm 13. The first two verses are distressed to the deepest degree. But the last verse is joyous to the highest degree. David begins many of his psalms sighing and ends them singing. I do not wonder that someone says, one would think those psalms have been composed by two men of a different disposition. My answer is that there is only one, but that one is two. Every person is two persons, especially every spiritual person. He will find within himself an old man and a new man, an old nature and a new nature. Whenever we look into David's psalms, we may somewhere or other see ourselves. I never get into a corner, but I find David in that corner. I think I was never so low that I could not find David was lower, and I never climbed so high that I could not find David was up above me, ready to sing his song upon a stringed instrument, even as I could sing mine. Spurgeon goes on to write that the transition happens through what we've been describing as the path of lament in that uh, turn, complain, ask, and trust process. In verse 3, that phrase, brightness of my eyes, or brightness to my eyes, David is asking for God's strength because he's like, look, I, I got no more. I got no more. And this is the moment that we so often see God truly move. It's when we have really reached that place where, where we really do need God. The place we can't have done it on our own. Where God's strength is the only thing that could accomplish as he moves in and through us to accomplish his will and his plan. God tells us, through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast, boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Because David has waited and trusted in God's plan, he's able to both trust and know that God will deliver him. Verse Five, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. It's amazing about how much more aware I am now that God is my deliverance because I've gone through a couple of those times where I had to learn that God was going to be there for me. Because God showed up, he fought on my behalf and didn't demand of me, even when it felt like he was several times through there. I know that his faithfulness and his love for me are real and tangible. Finally, family, here's what I'm saying. Lament is the path to restoration and healing because God's plans are better. We don't have to see a path to healing and restoration because God's already laid it out for us. He's the one that fixes us. We don't fix ourselves. We certainly don't fix other people, right? The churches try to do that way too long. We don't do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Not the church's job, not our job. But we also don't fix ourselves. The Holy Spirit does that in us. Lament is the path to restoration and healing is because God is the one that is fighting that battle for us. Not only do we not have to face our suffering, our pain, our injustice alone, but we don't even have to worry about the outcome because God is already victorious. Right? The Bible says that he's already won. We understand that God is king of all kings, lord of all lords. He's already done it. And so lament is the path to restoration and healing because we don't even have to have our own strength to do it. God is a strength and our vitality. He's our hope and our champion who's proven himself faithful. As it turns out, that the surest path to victory actually comes from surrender. 
surrender to Jesus, laying down our rights, our plans, and our strength to live within his. The surest path to victory in the midst of our suffering then is the path of lament. We're going to take communion now, and communion is a great time for us to remember that this is exactly what God has done. We are participating in the, the, the presence of God as we do this. And this is important because we do this as a family. But it's a command that Jesus gave us. It's, it's one of our sacraments that we are called to continue to take communion. This is where Jesus says, Matthew 26, 26 to 28, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving strength, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in the forgiveness of sins. Family and life, we can only go so long without food and water or breath before we face the reality of death. In the same way, Jesus tells us that we must abide in him. That word abide is, is like being continually connected to him like a branch and a vine. It, it's, we must feed on Jesus or face spiritual withering and lack of fruit. William Farley writes, to abide means literally to dwell in. We dwell in Christ by abiding in the truths of the gospel. So this morning as you come forward and take the communion, you take the juice and the bread back to your seats. Before you take the elements with your family or friends or community group, just reflect on the gospel. That despite our rebellion and wrath that we deserve, God himself came to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. That we are now his adopted and beloved children Call to his mission as we love Jesus and our neighbors. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for all that you have done. I thank you that we don't have to find a way because you are our way. We don't have to find victory because you are our victory. We don't have to have the strength because you are our strength. God, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We love you. Reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name.